There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. And with me today, I have Marcus Seidel, who is a uh, traditional utility guy and a researcher on energy issues in operating out of Hamburg, Germany. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, Rod. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about you and, and the interest you have in small reactors and why we got in touch with each other. Sure. So it's now exactly 20 years since I started my nuclear career. So in 2002, I received uh, a PhD in nuclear physics. And then I first joined a German TSO, a technical support organization, advising the regulator on issues on radiation protection, criticality safety and shielding. And then I later switched organizations, went to a turnkey supplier of nuclear power plants, and in that role mainly worked as a commissioning engineer for the new Munich high flux research reactor. And after this project was finished, I thought maybe it's a good time to really understand the big reactors and I switched again jobs, and ever since then I have been working for a German nuclear utility. So here my main responsibility is all about nuclear core and fuel design. And this means everything about reactor physics, thermal hydraulics, material properties under irradiation. And of course all the day-to-day -day business um, with regard to running safely a reactor core. And let me shortly mention here that I'm giving in this podcast all my personal opinion and experience. And of course, this should not be regarded as a statement of the organizations which I work for. So I'm also working not only for utility, I'm also a docent. I'm teaching reactor physics and energy market fundamentals at German universities. And yeah, I like teaching very much. This is consuming almost all my spare time. And I like it so much because it's really always a test, a test if you really understand what you're talking about. And it's also a good opportunity to keep up to date with latest research. And part of the research which I'm currently doing is I'm part of the so-called MacSafer collaboration. This is a European Union sponsored research project and it has a very complicated name. It's called High Performance Advanced Methods and Experimental Investigations for the Safety Evaluation of Generic Small Modular Reactors. So here the main objective in the first stage of the program is to adapt all those comparatively sophisticated tools which have been developed for big commercial reactors and adapt them for small modular reactors. So here, obviously, the focus is on, I would say, more classic small modular reactors, like the new scale concept. And yeah, there is, of course, a great diversity 
of small reactors now uh, coming to light. And mainly if the project is extended, we will also consider, for example, molten salt or high temperature gas cooled reactors. And maybe a small anecdote why it is also natural for a person located in Germany to look at small reactors. Some of you might remember the nuclear ship Otto Hahn, which was a nuclear powered vessel in the 1960s and 70s. It was operated for 10 years quite successfully until it couldn't anymore compete with much more cheaper diesel engines. But it was already there, these technologies were already there here in the country more than now 60 years ago. And that is part of my motivation to continue here research in this area. You uh, chose an interesting field to enter uh, considering you obtained your PhD about a year or year and a half after uh, your country had decided to exit from nuclear energy. That's absolutely right. And maybe I give you some high level point of view why I think research in nuclear fission is still worthwhile. This is a technology where I always thought it has great potential and we should be much more grateful that we have it compared to other technologies. And let's talk a little bit about the details, what I'm meaning here. So in the laboratory, you can generate energy from a lot of processes. Yeah, we have nuclear fission, we have nuclear fusion, we have a lot of biochemical possibilities to create and produce energy. But the one important thing is how can you scale up something from the laboratory to the real world so that we can generate macroscopic amounts of energy. And there, when you look to fission, there are actually three natural constants which are of the right size by luck and by sheer accident that they enable this scaling up. And the scaling up may not be possible for fusion or other processes which are able to be demonstrated in the laboratory. So which are these three basic constants? That's the size of the fission cross-section for neutrons on uranium-235. This is uh, the size of the number of secondary neutrons. And this is the number of delayed neutrons. Imagine a world, for example, where you have a neutron fission cross-section, which is as small as, for example, the photofission cross-section. So photofission also works and you can demonstrate it in the laboratory, but it's very unlikely that with this process, we could scale it up and build something commercially useful. So this is the first kind of wonder which we should appreciate that the fission cross section for uranium 235 with neutrons is sufficiently high that we can build these reactors. Then when you look at secondary neutrons, Imagine a world where secondary neutrons are zero. Then we would produce all the neutrons for fission externally. But this is probably very energy intensive and on balance, you get out less energy than you produce by the fission event. So a nuclear reactor is not only a source of energy, it's also a source of neutron amplification. 
and therefore it makes it possible that we create macroscopic amounts of energy. And finally, we have the delayed neutron fraction. If this would be zero, we would basically see a sequence of explosions. Maybe a reactor control could also be possible under these circumstances, but I doubt it. So it's very good that this fraction is a little bit smaller than zero and that we are able to control the reactors in the way we can control them. So these are these three basic constants, which are, yeah, by luck, in a sizable amplitude, which allows us to build real reactors from that. And that had always fascinated me. And um, that means also that I was not intimidated to join the subject, because I think we really have here something which, um, yeah, is proven to work and where we should continue working on and make it useful for society. Yeah, I, I agree with you on those three. I would add one more uh, fortunate uh, occurrence. And that is the fact that there is enough material yes. available at reasonably low cost to extract or find it to make this a commercially viable energy source. Yes, we exactly. have as Many uh, estimate we have hundreds to thousands of years worth of fuel uh, that can be found and extracted and used. So that is four uh, rather unusual uh, coincidences happening all in line with each other. And I'm a probabilistic kind of guy, so I uh, in some cases don't really believe that four such wonderful, fortunate events happen uh, by luck or by mere chance. Uh, because as you, I'm sure are well aware, uh, every uh, coincidence that has to happen in series reduces the probable probability of that coincidence happening. So anyway, I've often called fission a gift uh, I'm not a particularly religious guy, but I am, I guess, a little spiritual. So uh, moving on, uh, you have uh, spent some time in the uh, realm of neutron amplification by uh, working on a high-flux test reactor, it sounded like. Tell us a little bit about why Germany has uh, constructed that facility, and is it still in use? Yes, it is still in use, and it goes actually back to the Munich Research Reactor number one. So the Munich Research Reactor number one was also constructed already very early at the beginning of the nuclear age. And there, of course, we had much more enthusiasm <laughs> for nuclear. So it was a new technology. Also, a lot of the political establishment wanted to have it in Germany and study its processes. So it was actually, yeah, um, Munich Research Reactor number one, which is as old as a commercial age, basically. And um, in around 2018-90, it reached its, its useful life and um, there was consideration how it can be extended. So in Munich, at the Technical University of Munich, there's a strong team of um, scientists who have always worked in matters of neutron scattering and material sciences, and they were very ambitious that they replace this old neutron source 
and have a state-of-the-art facility. And luckily, one can say they had the right political backing still at that time to construct and get funding for this project. And it's still running. Um, it's running on highly enriched uranium. And um, of course, they try at the moment to find yeah, at least um, a downgrading solution for the nuclear fuel. But that's, of course, difficult because you have a compact source of energy, a very compact source, highly enriched. And it's quite a challenge to use lower enriched uranium and get the same neutral density out of the device. But that is ongoing research. And um, I hope that they will be successful in some time in the future. If they're not successful, do they have a sufficient inventory of uh, high, uh, highly enriched uranium to operate for a few decades? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think um, they have um, for a couple of years inventory, but um, they um, would run out maybe after five years if no new deliveries was coming. Yeah, I didn't expect you'd be able to get any new deliveries uh, with that material. The, the transition of research reactors from highly enriched uranium to uh, H highly high assay, low enriched uranium has been ongoing for a number of years, but there have been a few casualties of reactors that were not able to transition. Uh, sounds like yours might be one of those uh, if, if you can't come up with a technical solution soon. I mean, a transition is always possible, but maybe you lose neutron intensity. And um, you possibly lose neutron intensity. And um, then the question, of course, is, can this still be a state-of-the-art research facility? Now, let's move on to something else. You told us that one of the topics that you specialize in at the university level is uh, electricity markets. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what, what you teach your students about markets and how they uh, either affect subtract from or add to the value of nuclear electricity? Now, the most important thing which I'm talking about is what I call the management of risk, uncertainty, and volatility. And I would like to make the students aware um, that there is no linear planning how the energy market and the energy technologies in general, develop. So I think when you go to universities and you are educating engineers, especially, they have a kind of more model-based worldview. Yeah, you learn how thermohydraulic works, and you have deterministic equations that when you design something on paper, it will really work like it's designed on paper, so no surprises. That's the aim of engineering. But um, when you then join the real world and you see, for example, also the German uh, history of energy politics, you will soon see there were lots of switches back and forth. And the question is, how can you understand this as an engineer? Because as an engineer, you have basically a trained deterministic mindset. And um, yeah, we all know from the stock market that it's fluctuating all the times. And we have witnessed, especially in Germany, the switching between different policies. And how can you explain this? And as a traditional engineer, 
you learn a lot about risk, kind of casino strategies. Yeah, you have different scenarios, you know the probabilities, you know the payoffs, you can easily calculate expectation values. But this is not really happening in the energy markets. There is something which you can better explain as uncertainty. Yeah, you are looking at situations um, where you only very vaguely know which scenario may come up. You only very vaguely know what the probability are. So what do you do in these circumstances where the future is very opaque? And that's really what's happening in the energy market too. There is a lot of development at the moment going on, a lot of potential substitutes of what is challenging the traditional technologies. How do you behave under these circumstances of high uncertainty? The consequence is, of course, high volatility. Yeah, it's, it's always getting more uncertain in which kind of business area you should invest. And there the only answer is, okay, you need to do what financial people are doing. You need to invest in a portfolio and you have to deal with optionality. Yeah, you, do, you do not want to put all your eggs into one basket, but you basically want to buy options which now allow you to participate if some breakthrough occurs in some part of the portfolio that you can have a positive benefit from that. So this is very generally um, what I'm teaching at um, the Energy Market Fundamental Courses. I'm a systems technology guy. I know that all systems have a certain amount of capacity and you operate somewhere in a band of, of either fairly low utilization of the capacity or, or increasingly high utilization. And what happens a lot of times in a system, in fact, all the time, as far as I can tell, is as you get closer and closer to the capacity of the system, you get closer to a, a break point where the system starts failing much more often than it would normally fail. And, and that appears to be what we've been driving the electricity system to in, in many markets, a place where there's not that much difference between the use and capacity. And then we increase the, the probability of failure by adding uh, capacity that may or may not be there depending on the whims of the weather. How does that uh, circumstance sound to you? Yes, there is probable a kind of built-in fragility. Yeah. Um, so nobody really understands why the energy networks are still as stable as they are. So somehow we are able to meddle through and to keep everything stable. But um, the degree of fragility is probably increasing. And a fragile system will sometimes just break yeah, in an unforeseen manner. And um, I think the way how the traditional distribution grid was built and all the new additions which are coming online from very small suppliers and the yeah, non-base load capacities which are added, this adds much to the complexity of these systems. And yeah, time will show if this complexity can be controlled or if we somehow have a devastating failure. And I mean, from a physical perspective, you can say 
fragility with time will always lead to a breakdown. It's only when, and it's difficult to say <laughs> when it will particularly happen, but it might happen. And as we know, uh, as we are all experiencing in politics, only when very serious things happen, we get a commitment to upgrade something. It occurs to me that there's some real cognitive dissonance of, uh, associated with people worrying terribly about the breakdown in a nuclear reactor and its consequences compared to the breakdown of our electricity distribution grids, electricity transmission and distribution grids, uh, and what the consequences of a breakdown there might be. It just seems kind of, uh, we as engineering types, I'm not actually an engineer, I'm more of a generalist who kind of has an engineering bent, uh, have not carefully or not effectively communicated the the real concerns that we have about the system breaking. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, from a psychology perspective, humans try to view risks in isolation. Yeah, you have the risk of a breakdown of a nuclear power station, and people are very afraid of it, but they do not compare this risk to other risks which are occurring. And um, the risk of a breakdown of the electricity grid probably is a little bit higher <laughs> at the moment than the risk of a nuclear accident. And also the consequences of a breakdown of the electricity grid, yeah, the expectation value is, is probably higher. The consequences, the impact is stronger. And this is willfully ignored. I would absolutely agree in this point of view. The consequences of a nuclear reactor accident have often been described as high. People will talk about reactor accidents as low probability, high consequence events. Yet the experience that we have, uh, other than the reactions to the uh, accidents, the experience has been that accidents at nuclear plants are no worse than accidents at other industrial facilities. And in fact, in some cases, seem to be far less consequential. Absolutely. Can we do something to communicate that? Is, is there some advantage to, to smaller systems to make that uh, distinction clearer? I think the smaller systems have one of the objectives of reducing, still reducing the core damage frequency. So this is this is one of the basic um, ideas of these smaller reactors to have still another um, yeah way forward to reduce um, the potential of um, a severe accident. And um, maybe um, let's look from a more um, abstract perspective how this core damage frequency can be reduced. So obviously by making a reactor simpler. This is one way forward. Why? By making it simpler. When you look at a nuclear reactor and um, try to understand what the systems there all mean, you can describe a nuclear reactor like a catastrophe insurance machine. Yeah, all the, the energy generation is, is easy. It almost works for itself. So not much oversight there necessary. But all the investment and all the difficulty in getting a nuclear facility licensed is about accidents. So the components which we have all around the reactor are really 
catastrophe insurance components. And um, just as a side remark, if we would have this amount of catastrophe insurance in, for example, the banking sector, we wouldn't have uh, seen all these um, great breakdowns, for example, in 2008. But that's another matter. So we have a reactor which has a lot of equipment just there for catastrophe insurance. And um, how can we make this even more safer? So the best way to make it safer is that it becomes inherently more safer and that we can reduce the amount of catastrophe insurance which we need. And this is usually done by stripping potential event trees. So in a classical light water reactor, you have um, yeah, the, the um, possibility that occurs a large break loss of coolant accident. And um, if you do not want to have it in your vent tree, you integrate all the components into a single vessel. Yeah, you have the steam generator in the vessel, you have the pressurizer in the vessel, you have primary pumps in the vessel, or you have no primary pumps at all and just rely on natural convection. So this is basically a process of stripping the event tree, making it simpler. Therefore, you need less catastrophe insurance equipment, you decrease the core damage um, frequency, and thereby, hopefully, the smaller reactor is much more safer than the existing plants, which we see. You also get some advantage from an accident consequence perspective if you have a smaller core, a less powerful core, that has less decay heat uh, available to it and less capability to uh, exit the pressure vessel if it gets damaged. In nuclear uh, safety calculations, I've been associated with some of those, people seem to feel like if you get to a core damage, you failed. And of course, that is true in, on some perspective. But if the core gets damaged and the reactor, uh, radioactive material never leaves the vessel, it has no external consequences. The owner might not be very happy about it, but the public shouldn't care. Yes, I agree. And one can also um, add a different perspective here. What is the real problem of any fission device from a safety perspective? The real problem or challenge is always to remove the decay heat. I mean, shutting down the reactor has never been really an issue. The issue is always you shut down the reactor and there remains the decay heat. The decay heat is around 7% of the nominal reactor power at shutdown. So it's quite a significant amount of energy which you still need to remove after shutdown and which you need to remove for a couple of days and even weeks. And the logical consequence is you need a lot of water, a lot of coolant to still remove the decay heat. So for a more classical small reactor, how can you do this? You can just put this reactor in a large pool and thereby you ensure almost naturally that there is enough cooling capacity available. Compared to a large reactor, you of course could also passively provide a huge amount of moderator or huge amount of coolant as an emergency preparation. Of course, large reactors have a small pool of emergency inventory, but for say week-long cooling, this is of course not sufficient. You would have to need a lot more 
of um, emergency coolant just to use it as um, um, a natural repository. So that means in the large reactors, you rely on active components yeah, to recycle the coolant. This is something which smaller reactors don't need. Uh, you can build economically relatively large amount of pools where you place those smaller reactors and then you can rely on passive equipment to ensure decay heat removal. This makes it all safer and easier to control these devices in case of an accident. You said that your research initially focused on uh, smaller light water reactors, small modular reactors, but you are going to expand it to some of the other concepts of high temperature gas reactors and liquid sodium fast reactors and uh, several um, molten salt reactors, which are all under development for a reason other than simply shrinking some of the effects and some of the need to provide decay heat uh, removal or putting the, the need to provide decay heat removal into a small enough package to be conceivable for almost an indefinite period. But some of these other concepts use a different thought process for how to get rid of decay heat. For example, a high temperature gas reactor in some concepts that I've been reviewing have fairly low, actually relatively much lower power densities than traditional light water reactors. They use a material which has much greater heat capacity as part of the solid core. And they show that the decay heat that is produced after shutdown can be absorbed within the core and core materials These, by just heating up those materials to a point where it's still below where the materials will fail. And so it doesn't need any sources of, of cooling to keep you from causing damage to the core. Uh, I know that Germany has had some significant experience with high temperature gas reactors, and I'll focus on those initially. Uh, what are your thoughts about that path uh, towards eliminating the probability of core damage from decay heat? Yes, this is another alternative way to deal with the decay heat issue, so to speak. If you have a molten salt reactor, the core is already molten and you do not need to really care about a meltdown event of a reactor because you can naturally already control it. Yeah, we have everything already in place. And if you have enough heat capacity to absorb the decay heat and stay below some critical temperatures, it's even more easy to deal with these events. So. As you said, these are just two other passes forward to deal with this very important issue. And another reason why some people are interested or many uh, researchers are interested in different coolants other than water is that water at reactor operating temperatures really, really wants to be steam. And so you have to be very conscious of your reactor pressure boundary in order to keep the conditions of the reactor uh, coolant being water, or at least mostly water, um, and that 
in some of the other coolants, liquid sodium or uh, molten salt, the operating pressures need to be much, much lower near atmospheric pressure in order to keep the coolant in a condition that you expect it for reactor physics calculations. What are your thoughts about alternative coolants? Yes, I think this is a very attractive um, approach to deal with the difficulties of um, having water to uh, want to turn into steam. <laughs> so I think that's nothing new, of course. I mean, this was tried already many, many years ago. And these machines are always, say, a trade-off. Yeah? Um, there can be, of course, corrosion issues when you have these alternative coolants. And on the other side, we have today already a lot of experience dealing with this water wanting to turn into steam. So you have to trade off the great amount of knowledge which we have about water-cooled reactors compared to more speculative designs um, with um, alternative coolants which look very attractive, operating at atmospheric pressure, no um, yeah, pressure boundary really needed. And we have to see and wait if the confidence and the knowledge of the material properties and the reliable um, operation under these conditions is already sufficient to uh, make these devices happen. So from a very um, abstract grand perspective, you probably have heard and um, read the book from Thomas Kuhn about the structure of scientific revolutions. And he always said there is a period of puzzle solving and a period of paradigm change. And I think these alternative approaches with um, new coolant types, they are in this puzzle solving phase, trying to figure out, do we have enough knowledge to, to make it work reliably on the expectation a utility has? And of course, the investors in, in these technologies, they hope that this paradigm change will be right around the corner and that they can profit from um, a breakthrough in, in, in this field. One of the other uh, innovations or breakthroughs that uh, is happening in the smaller reactor realm is that some of the reactor vendors have decided that what they really uh, see is the, the path towards high prop profitability is to be a developer and operator of their re own reactors. Because in the case of selling a reactor to the utility, the utility is, is the one that actually has the stream of revenue for the next 40 to 60 years. And the reactor vendor, uh, if they design a system that is as reliable as they possibly can make it, the reactor vendor gets cut out of revenue. So they think that maybe the possibility is to design a really reliable, uh, low cost reactor, low total cost reactor, not, not a cheap reactor, uh, and then own it and operate it themselves. Uh, have you run into that? I know you're a traditional <laughs> utility guy, but I'm some not, of these yeah. vendors. <laughs> I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it because um, you will soon see that operating in the, in the electricity market is quite a complicated business. And um, 
first of all, the revenue is not guaranteed. Yeah, you often see a lot of fluctuation. Of course, at the moment, at the time being, with the very high electricity prices, everybody wants to be in the business of generating electricity. But this can also turn around, and there were also periods where electricity prices were not so high. Then the market is very regulated, and I doubt that um, traditional turnkey suppliers would really want to enter this kind of market. You can also look, for example, at the manufacturers of wind turbines. You can say manufacturing wind turbines is very simple, very easy. So why do those companies not enter the electricity market? Because they want to stay to their core business. And I think if traditional turnkey suppliers of nuclear power plants would study the electricity market and all the regulations which come with it, they really stay to their core business. Yeah, of course, it, it is uh, remains to be proven that traditional utility companies uh, are any better at operating in today's markets than anybody else. Uh, today's markets are uh, difficult at best to predict. So it's it, it not necessarily sure that, that being a big traditional utility gives you any real advantage uh, in making decisions. I'm not sure, like I said, I'm not sure that anybody can figure out how to operate in a market uh, that's designed the way today's market is. I think the, re the real beneficiaries are the fuel suppliers. Yes. And I may also add another perspective here. Um, what is really the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is really that we have a reactor which is as boring as a battery. Yeah? If we would come to this stage that a, a reactor can be deployed in a plug-and-play way and uh, that we can use it like a battery, then I would also say maybe the whole structure of the electricity market is going to change. Yeah, then you don't need um, sophisticated regulations. You don't need um, yeah, all the knowledge about the electricity markets. You can just sell these batteries, um, for example, to uh, commercial customers who operate them on site for their purposes. And then I think this middleman um, yeah, uh, role of traditional utilities may be really dying out. Today's traditional vendors uh, have evolved to a market where they make most of their money from servicing the, the reactors they sold decades ago. Yes. And in that case, uh, it's not necessarily to their benefit to have a very boring, reliable, never maintained <laughs> reactor. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's simply the, the way of business that you have to figure out how you're going to make your money and where your income streams are going to come from. So tell us a little bit about the, the research uh, effort that you've initiated. You sent me to a web page and, and indicated that it's, it's calling for researchers to uh, come and, and maybe publish their their research all in one place, or um, I think that's what it seems to be. Yes. Tell us a little bit more. Yes, it's it's um it's one of um, my initiatives to um, bring this knowledge and uh, current research activities regarding small reactors um, into one place. So obviously there is a lot of activity ongoing, and uh, when you look at traditional papers with, which are written in this field. They are often very focused. And what I personally would like to see is that it is put more into perspective. So, I mean, small 
reactors are not falling from the clear blue sky. We had already quite some attempts in the early 50s and 60s to enable and, and to try and test small reactors and they somehow failed. Uh, they failed due to economic reasons. They failed due to bad design choices and also due to material issues. And then a long period of puzzle solving uh, continued and nobody was really um, able to figure out how to um, yeah, rebuild uh, a fleet of small reactors. Now we are suddenly seeing a lot of interest in this field. And if you're doing research on this subject, it's really for me important to show, yes, we know what has happened in the past. We can be confident that we are this time much more successful than we were in the past. And um, this is something which um, I not see so often. So I thought it would be a good idea if there's research, say, on high temperature gas cooled reactors. What are they really now making better than before? What is the reason that we can have more confidence um, compared to the earlier designs, which were already existing? And I think there are a couple of reasons why we can be optimistic. Uh, we have a lot better engineering tools. We have evaluated nuclear data and we have uh, many validated, sophisticated tools, which allow us to increase the search space and to find the best possible configuration for that particular reactor design. And I would like to have that um, participants really contribute to this perspective. Okay, this was happening in the past. Now we have new research, new tools, new knowledge about material properties, also new material itself are available on the market. And therefore there's reason for optimism. And um, that's uh, the basic motivation to uh, bring uh, this research uh, together in, in one place. I've done a lot of reading and research about many of the earlier small systems. And it appears to me that if you judge them on the basis of being uh, first or second of a kind uh, system, their success was much higher than than what you and others have implied. That there, yes, there were some uh, issues, a few things that ultimately caused the specific uh, reactor to, um, or the specific system to not uh, be as effective as it could have been. But one of the real challenges has been lack of follow through, lack of additional uh, installations, sales, if you will, uh, of these reactors so that there would be a sufficient motivation to solve those engineering problems. Or in some cases, they were just minor niggling problems that may have led to uh, a reactor not performing as well as it could have. But all it needed was an adjustment here, an adjustment there, and it would have been better. Uh, those kinds of things happen in, in almost any man manufactured or constructed product. But in order to, to make the changes, you have to have a stream of revenue that would encourage you to go back and fix what you had before and make, make evolutionary changes. So it appears to me that one of the things we really need is some research on better marketing and better uh, ability to sell products so that you can uh, go through the engineering process of improving it and refining the product. Uh, will that be part of your research effort, marketing? 
Yes, I mean, I would like to demonstrate to <laughs> my own colleagues that we are um, now much more confident that this can be a business success. So this is part of the marketing effort, I, I, would, I would say. And um, I would also like to mention or add here, you have to have the right person at the right time at the right location. So, for example, going backwards, 1950, 60, there was the U.S. Army nuclear program and there was the U.S. Navy nuclear program. And the U.S. Army program somehow faded. Yeah? It couldn't compete with much more cheaper uh, diesel engines. But the environment for the nuclear submarines, for the aircraft carrier fleet was just right for those small reactors to continue their life and they exist and fulfill their job until today. So it's always also a question, is the condition, the environment right for those reactors? And today I think we have a great market leverage. We have the issue of energy security and we have the issue of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that will add a lot to our marketing ability. On the other hand, there is skepticism. Can we do it reliably? And the research project really here is to add to the optimism that I can go into marketing and say, yes, look, the research has progressed so much that we really can expect in the next couple of years a paradigm change that small reactors can reliably be a source of electricity. Yeah, I've also studied a lot about the Army nuclear power program and I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I spent 33 years in the Navy. So part part of that in, in operating uh, in our nuclear submarine fleet and part of it in being at the Navy headquarters and making uh, investment decisions on parts of the nuclear reactor program, like maintenance, training, and even supported naval reactors for a while. So I have a pretty good understanding of how the fleet concept worked and also how important the single man theory was, at least for the first part of the nuclear reactor program in the Navy. Again, part of the the thing that happened in the Navy was that there was sufficient uh, motivation to make the system work and to refine it to become a, a the reliable and actually amazing reliable system it is today. Yes. Back in the early days, I believe the burn-up uh, uh, availability of uh, the fuel was somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 megawatt days per ton. And it it is now uh, enough so that we can operate a reactor for a full 30-year lifetime of the, the, the hull and never refuel the reactor. Uh, there have also been many, many improvements within the system. Unfortunately, the Navy has saw fit to maintain those improvements as confidential or secret or even tougher uh, classification levels and never shared them with anybody except for the very first we we the navy reactor program did share what they knew about pressurized water reactors in 1954 with the rest of the world, helped to build a, the first pressurized water reactor and then never shared any more information. Uh, kind of let the, the commercial fleet diverge and figure out its own material issues. 
going back to your talk about corrosion of materials, of course, in a light water reactor with boiling water and, and pressurized uh, steam generators, pressurized water reactors, there was plenty of corrosion issues associated with using light water. It's just that we had enough motivation to solve them uh, and refine the materials as time went on. So the small reactors have been operating in a fleet mode uh, for the last 60 years. And we've gone through several series of small reactors. One of the most successful was the, the S5W uh, reactor plant that I believe there was something in the order of 85 of those built and operated successfully for many years. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any question whether or not small light water reactors can be a success. It's just a matter of uh, figuring the right design and, and building enough of them, selling enough of them to enough customers to make them uh, economic. Yes, and it, at the moment it might be the right point in, in time in history that this may succeed. Partly because uh, the idea of cheap diesel, and the engines may be cheap, but when you make the calculations of how much it costs to produce power from a diesel engine, yes, I think you spend as much as the engine costs after just operating it for about a year and a half. Uh, for the rest of its operating life, almost all of its cost is fuel. Exactly. And as I like to point out to people, almost all the revenue from a diesel engine uh, goes to the fuel supplier, not the people who operate it, not the people who build the machine, not the people who maintain the parts and everything else. It almost all goes to the people that sell the fuel. Yes. We feel it at the pump. <laughs> Yes, it's a pump of uh, to <laughs> yes, I'll agree with that. Unfortunately, it pumps its exhaust material into the atmosphere yeah. and causes real problems for the rest of us uh, for the rest of, of its operating life. Uh, so th there's a real disadvantage to uh, burning hydrocarbons. Not only are they costly, uh, not only do they pollute, not only do they contribute to greenhouse gases, but in many cases they come from regimes that are uh, not necessarily friendly to the rest of the world. Exactly. It's a shame. It's maybe not quite accidental that uh, the Russians are making more money from selling fuels today than they were six months ago, even though there's been some effort to restrain our purchases of them. They may sell lower volumes, but prices of their fuels are higher enough higher that that overcomes the disadvantage. Exactly. It may be more difficult for Russia if we had a low oil price now. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt that it would be uh, more difficult for the Russians if we had a low oil price. Some forget that the reasons that the Soviet Union ended up collapsing in the end of the 1980s was the period from about 1985 through 1990 was a period of exceedingly low oil prices uh, down to below $10 yeah. a barrel after having been in excess of $45 a barrel uh, in the earlier parts of that, that period. And I believe there's a really good case to be made, although people haven't made it very well, that the period of the 1980s was in an awful lot of new nuclear power plants were being brought online around the world, many of them in places that were previously dependent on burning oil. France, Sweden, Taiwan, exactly. Japan, 
we're all uh, major oil consumers for electricity production. For sure. I mean, the fleet in Germany of nuclear reactors was also driven in this time to uh, be built. So that was the original motivation. And it seems like history is repeating itself at the moment. I came of age in the 1970s, so I definitely feel like there's echoes of my early years, uh, first being aware of how the world works uh, happening again today. It's it's pretty uh, frightening uh, for my my near term thoughts, particularly as one who's got uh, growing grandchildren who are not too far away from starting to think about college and what they're going to do for their career. The the 1970s energy crisis was partly what motivated me to enter the career I did. I, I joined the Navy to learn about nuclear energy. Uh, quite frankly, I uh, decided, I found out that was the best place in the world to, to learn about nuclear energy. And that's where I went because that's what I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't that much about uh, The other thing, I, I like serving my country, but I really wanted to learn about nuclear energy. Do you think there's any possibility that uh, Germany will uh, enter into the small modular reactor uh, realm? So I have my own theory about it. <laughs> As a physicist, I have my own theory. So basically, you have to understand from a high-level perspective what is going on here. Um, we have a country. A country is a complex system. What do complex systems do? They behave chaotically. This means um, when you follow the history of a country, certain properties of this country will just change stochastically, randomly. Now, we have a couple of people who insist that this country never ever will have energy generation by means of nuclear fission again. And you should realize this is actually a prediction those people are making on the future of a chaotic system. So you basically cannot really predict what will happen, really. You cannot predict how the world looks in five years, how it looks in 10 years. So if we have this paradigm change, what Thomas Kuhn is talking about, and if we would really see that small reactors are employed on a large scale and Not only on a large scale, what we see is an ecosystem of small reactors, which also may offer waste burning potentials. So if this is really established on a large scale, and if it's successful in a lot of other countries, then I think it's no doubt that a government will reconsider its approach, which is having now. So I'm personally optimistic that sometime There will be a paradigm change and what is history remains history. Do you think there's uh, any relationship or uh, how big is the relationship between some of the opposition that Germany has some lo logical opposition to having tactical or short range or intermediate range nuclear weapons stationed there and the attitudes of the German public towards nuclear energy in general? I think it's, again, this kind of looking at risks individually. Uh, uh, people focus on civil nuclear energy generation, and I think not many focus on these weapons being placed here in Germany. 
So they can't compare the different risks and they're also not thinking holistically what it all means and if the approach to civil nuclear is logical with regard to other nuclear devices which are in the country. And I think at the moment, a lot of the German public probably would um, yeah, be in favor of this nuclear deterrent, seeing the threat of Russia, and they would look at this differently compared to what they think about commercial nuclear reactors. So it's probably not um, a driver. So the, the, the protection from nuclear weapons is probably not a driver to um, increase the confidence in civil nuclear because risks are considered separately. Germany has a very strong Green Party that has always been opposed to the use of nuclear energy. And I think that some of the people that you mentioned that have said that Germany will never use nuclear fission again uh, come from that party. What region of the country did the Green Party originate from? Or was it a, a, a rather distributed party? I think for sure the Green Party comes from the western part of Germany, obviously. It was not possible in the eastern part, as in former eastern part, um, to establish itself there. So it's um, strongly backed um, by the western part of Germany. And I think there it's fairly well distributed. Of course, there were core centers of what you may call resistance, where the nuclear reactors were originally built. There was uh, yeah, the hands-on uh, threat, so to speak, right um, on the face. But these reactors were built and scattered all around Germany. So when you look at the identity distribution of um, the Green Party, I think it's more or less um, equally distributed among the Western German energy regions. Did the opposition to uh, nuclear really arise local to the, the plants. In the U.S., many uh, polls have been taken and found that the closer you are to an operating nuclear power station, the higher the, the support for nuclear energy is, logically, because the people who are close to the plant have more association with those who work there and more understanding of what the benefits of having a nuclear power station nearby can be. I think when you just ask these people who are living near the plant, this is correct. This is probably also correct, has been correct for a long time in Germany because these plants have been a great source of revenue for the local community. On the other hand, I think the opposition was of course attracted to these sites to demonstrate their resistance. And uh, this of course naturally led to the wider environment around those plants to also host um, yeah, the opposition parties. Um, but I would also maybe add another perspective to uh, this question. It's again a question of being the wrong person on the wrong location at the wrong time. So I personally don't really think that there is opposition due to nuclear fission at all. So it was just, uh, say, uh, maybe a little bit of bad luck that this issue was hostage taken by some politically interested people who saw that they can 
yeah, raise emotions and that they can build a political movement out of it. And if there would have been any other topic which would have been able to create similar emotions available at that time, then probably we would have not a nuclear fission movement, but some other movement, which we really don't understand from a rational point of view. I mean, you know from your own country, there are other topics which you can't really discuss rationally. And um, I don't think that these topics, which are so irrationally discussed, have something to do with the topic itself. It's just bad coincidence that this topic was available for a group who wanted to establish itself politically and build political support. And unfortunately, um, in Germany, it hit uh, the nuclear fission industry. <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely have our issues that cause great divide. And part of what happens when you have a great divide is that some people end up getting a lot stronger. Uh, and it's, it's very concerning to me, particularly since I have four granddaughters. Yeah. Uh, and I am, I'm very concerned about what some of our recent decisions have been. It's distressing. That's, that's outside the topic of this conversation. So we're coming on, well, we actually just passed a, an hour of, of talking. I'd like to offer you the opportunity to maybe sum up or provide any other thoughts about where uh, you see the future of research on small modular reactors is going and what you think the uh, possibilities that at least some of the small modular reactors being uh, developed today are going to to meet, meet the needs of potential energy customers. So my first thought is here, what we need is a paradigm change. We need those reactors to be deployed, not on the orders of tens, but of the orders of hundreds and more. So if new scale just um, produces 10 of those reactors, this doesn't change the world history. We need to make an impact on climate change and energy security. That means small reactors need to be deployed en masse. And the only way that this can be done is that they prove to be almost as reliable as a battery. And I think there is, from an educated guest point of view, the potential that this will happen. But of course, still no guarantee. So it's happening when it's happening. And um, if it's really as reliable as those companies envision, then you would probably see big industrial consumers to install these, what I jetzt call in quotation marks, batteries on their sites. And they hopefully have a reliable source of electricity, especially in these very yeah, volatile times. So that is my first thought. The second thought here is what I'm still missing a bit, not in the small reactor development, but generally is an automatization of the licensing process and of the whole project management of building a reactor. So when you look at the de delays which have plagued um, Flammerville or all Kyoto 3, it all uh, boils down that it's more or less everything handmade. And also licensing of small modular reactors and other reactor types are almost still handmade. 
And the usual experience is you go to the regulator and you have to work out a compromise and you have to adapt your design. And then it takes often many weeks until you come up with a new design and until it's reviewed again. So I think in this field, there is really a potential for some companies to add innovation in order to make this process much more automatic and much more systematic so that you go today to the regulator, come to a compromise, next day you have already on your plate the revised design. And um, okay, this benefits both small and large reactors, but there I also personally hope that we see more innovation with, with we have available with all these great machine learning tools with increased data bank tools. So that may be one overlooked point where innovation really can help to turn the industry around. Well, thank you. I, I do believe that one of the advantages that you have with smaller reactors is the numbers of, of reactors that will be needed and sold, offering you the opportunities to take advantage of some of those design refinement potential that we have with modern tools. Yes. It, when you have a very large system, it just takes a long time to get everything in place and to complete the project. And by the time you've learned things and completed the project, it, it may be too late to enter the refinements into the system. Um, for example, in the US, we have this really nice design called the AP1000. Yes. And Unfortunately, the first opportunities to employ that design were such dramatic uh, failures, uh, taking too long and costing too much that none of the customers, even those that already have approved licenses to build AP1000s are showing up to ask for more. So we need to be able to refine designs and turn that around quickly enough to make a difference. And I think going smaller gives you that opportunity. Yes, smaller reactors have a head start, but if you are an ambitious technologist, you would say <laughs> maybe we can bring in a later stage these advantages also to bigger projects. So it's impossible to tell how the future will look like. Maybe we are successful with small reactors and people get more courageous and then also attempt to build bigger plants again. Nothing is for sure here. Yes, uh, we didn't build the first wave of big plants uh, starting off very big, we started off smaller and practiced. We learned how to build and then decided to go bigger. And that may be a, a path that we follow again by uh, restoring our ability to build and design and license and operate uh, smaller systems. We may develop the confidence and the skills necessary to succeed with bigger systems. Uh, it just, it, it's Flamenville and Oklaludo were not only trying to build big systems to begin with, they were bigger than any before. So uh, anyway, that's that's part of my own persuasion of people is we gotta practice, we gotta get better, we gotta build things in series. That doesn't mean a series of completely identical machines, but machines that are very close to each other with some refinements in between. Uh, Marcus, I, I really uh, appreciate you uh, coming with us and sharing your thoughts and uh, wish you the best of luck in your research efforts. Thank you very much, Rod. It was a pleasure to have an interview with you. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Atomic Show. 
This is Rod Adams, and I've been your host for The Atomic Show for more than 15 years. Along with Atomic Insights, I've been speaking with experts in analyzing nuclear energy for more than three decades. While I'll continue to produce new content, I am also actively investing in advanced nuclear and related ventures. As a managing partner of Nucleation Capital, I'm expanding my access and getting to dig even deeper into nuclear energy companies. We're working hard to select ventures with extraordinary promise of success. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. The best part is the fact that we're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions which typically allocate to venture capital. We believe regular investors should have access to advanced nuclear for their own portfolios, so we allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. Eight quarters will get you eight to 12, which is pretty diversified exposure. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. See you next time. There's a way, a way, such a better way. Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better way. Ooh, there's a way, such a better way. Today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. The way is the Adam's way.